episode of That Time When, the comedy history podcast about strange things happening in history. Ooh. I made it sound like it's a Halloween episode, and it's really not. No, uh, this is May. <laughs> it is May. Well, we're recording it in May. Mm-hmm. Who knows when you'll be hearing it. But also, it's not really a scary story this time, because like last week, you told us about a crazy old homeless guy. I did. And I decided to respond in kind with my own crazy old homeless guy this week. Okay. This story goes back to two profiles written about this one crazy old homeless guy in The New Yorker. Uh, One written in 1942 and then the other posthumously in 1964. Okay. It was written by a journalist called Joseph Mitchell, uh, who's quite famous. I don't know if we have any American listeners, they may well have heard of him, Uh, or anyone who's sort of interested in that sort of era of literature. We're talking about early to mid 20th century. Okay, so like kind of just after the war? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it takes place part of it during the war. Okay. As you see, like 1942, writing Mm -hmm. for the New Yorker. I can't remember, when did the Americans join World War II? I am not sure. That's shocking. (laughs) (laughs) How could you? Um, Well, I actually first heard about this guy uh, from a point-and-click adventure game. Of Uh, course you did. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably going to find that a lot with any of my weeks where I'll be like, hey, I was watching this film, or I was playing this game, or reading this (laughs) book, and you know what? There was a character in it, and turns out they were real and did all this stuff. Um, So this was a... Game by Wadjetai, who, mm-hmm. uh, quick plug, do some great point-and-click adventure games. If you are into them, check them out. Uh, it was a Blackwell series about a woman who uh, is essentially a medium helping spirits go on to the afterlife. And she meets the spirit of a man called Joe Gould. And Joe Gould was a crazy old homeless guy. Great, yeah. <laughs> and he was a real stereotype. Like, if you imagine a crazy old bohemian sort of almost hipster-like guy with a top knot no he was quite bald on top. <laughs> okay um, but like crazy old homeless guy who had like a thing for poetry and the arts and everything like that he was this stereotype okay so like um we were talking last time about um the emperor of america yeah and his whole thing was like mad homeless politics yeah but this guy is mad homeless poetry well, no, not not poet. Like he liked poetry. He liked a lot of things. His thing is history. Okay. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So, Joseph Mitchell, he wrote these two profiles and then combined them together in a book called Joe Gould's Secret. Right. But he first wrote this profile because he actually he wrote the profile ten years after he first sort of met or heard about Joe Gould. And at that point, Joe Gould was sort of just going from place to place. He wasn't really part of Joseph Mitchell's life. It was the winter of 1932. So it was right. the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. and Lots of homeless people. Lots of homeless people. Lots of homeless bohemians. So they were all sort of the people with alternative lifestyles, vagabond poets, struggling artists. They weren't the hipsters of the day, but okay. no, not middle class. I was wondering for a moment if you literally meant he was from Bohemia. No, 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 no. This is a a term for these sorts of people. So we're thinking like all of those people who turn up in, oh my gosh, what's that film? Moulin Rouge. The Moulin Rouge people. Yes, yeah, actually perfect. Perfect example. They are the kind of people you're talking about. It was the depression. Yep. It was winter. Lots of people dying of starvation and the cold. Yeah. And what would happen was waiters in various parts of... Uh, we're talking about New York here, and specifically mm-hmm. the Greenwich Village. Okay. Um, very hipster. Very hipster, yes. Uh, waiters would sometimes keep the sort of scraps and leftovers that uh, other people had left behind, sort of gather it together, and at the end of the day, wrap them up in paper and give them out to the struggling bohemian starving people. Cool, okay. So Joseph Mitchell was in... One of these, it was a sort of cafe, it was attached to a courthouse. Okay. He was, he was in there one day and he overheard some people talking about this little old man who had just entered. This little old man had come in basically because he was so cold and so hungry that he couldn't wait until the end of the day. Because typically the waiters wouldn't give out until the end of the day because, you know, they didn't want to mm. disturb the fancier clientele. 
Yeah, you know, the ones who are actually paying them. Exactly. We, we, we don't want to disturb them with, with the, the pearls uh, coming in from the street. Um, but Jogal was so hungry that he came in and was basically begging for food. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of begging in Jogal's life, some of which is, well, we'll get to that. Okay. He's an interesting fellow. <laughs> right. There's a lot of stuff that sounds awful, and then it's like, oh. Anyway. So Joseph Mitchell, in there, overhears people talking about this little old man. And one of them says that this little old man was writing the longest book in the history of the world. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you a brief description of what Joe Gould looks like. Because it kind of... It's a bit of a defining trait of his. Uh, he was five foot four and believed uh, to weigh no more than a hundred pounds. What? Yeah, so that's just over seven stone. Yeah. Or 45 kilos, depending on how you want to measure your weight. Oh, God. Yeah, he was this tiny man. And he would often wear coats that were several sizes too large. Well, he probably couldn't find coats that were of the right size, right? Yeah, pretty much. And he would wear them until they fell apart completely. Yeah. He'd wear the same thing. And often he would pad them out with newspapers. Oh, that's so classic. It is. Not only is it so classic, he said of himself regarding this that he was the snob because he would only dress himself in the times. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> that is classy. He had long, heavily receding hair and a long, wild beard. So, like like I said, he is kind of a stereotype. So he looks a bit like a Greek philosopher, but wearing a massive coat. Yeah, kind of. Um, I'm going to show you a picture of him. Oh, right wow. Now. Okay. I swear to God I've seen someone who looks like that. It, I, mean, I think a lot of people have, to be honest. Like, he's, um... Yeah, so he's one of those old guys who looks vaguely like Father Christmas. Hmm. Yeah, except... Except very, like, billowy. Yeah. Like, in terms of the hair, it's all over the place. Yeah, if you Google Joe Gould, which I'm actually doing now to show Amelia, then there are plenty of portraits of him. He was very famous for reasons that you'll soon understand. So yeah, he did sort of look like a stereotype. And to be honest, like, looking, acting like a stereotype, everything like that, it's kind of what I feel Joe Gould was going for. Like, he was doing it on purpose? Yeah. Okay. You'll see why. So in 1942, Joseph Mitchell uh, got a job at the New Yorker, and he decided that he wanted to write a profile of Gould, because Gould was the archetype of like the nocturnal vagrant and the eccentric wanderer and that was sort of very common of the bohemians of Greenwich Village. Okay, yeah. But he didn't know Gould at this point. He'd seen him around like for 10 years on mm-hmm. and off. He would occasionally see him hanging around. Sometimes you'd see him in a cafe like scribbling furiously in a book. Yeah. Um, or else going around begging for food, for booze, for anything really. He didn't know him but he got this idea... I think from vague chatting with other people, that Gould was austere and aloof. Okay. So he didn't know if Gould would actually be receptive to having a profile done on him. Yeah. So he put about some inquiries to people who knew Joe Gould personally, and these were bartenders, waiters, and some of the old-time villagers. And that's uh, villagers with a capital V. Yeah, because we're talking about the village. Exactly, we are. So anytime I mention that, know that villagers in this context has a capital V. We're not talking about a little yoldy tiny village. No, we are not. Uh, so Joe Gould had no permanent residence, obviously, and he didn't really have a pattern to his life. Uh, when he had money, he would sleep in flop houses. Okay. Uh, do you know what a flop house is? I'm going to guess it's like a homeless shelter or something. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, when he didn't have money, though, he would try to catch a sleep on a sofa at a friend's house. Yep. And if nothing else was available to him, well, he'd sleep in doorways. Uh, he'd be seen around and about at different bars, cafes, eateries, uh, or any place that would still let him in. He was chucked out of a lot of places. Oh, jeez, okay. And could always be seen writing furiously in what were described as uh, composition books. Basically, mm-hmm. cheap school books, the sort with, like, ruled lines, paper covers, and copies of Times Tables in the backs. Okay, nice. Um... So even though he could be seen at many different places, trying to pin him down was always a bit of a challenge. Uh, A challenge that, spoilers, was no easier when you got to know him. Okay. (laughs) 
So one day when Mitchell was out and about, he phoned his office to see if there were any messages that had been left for him. And he was told by his receptionist that a grubby little man was in his office waiting <laughs> to see him. Okay. And that he had actually been waiting there for an hour. Mitchell said, you know, put him on the phone. Yeah. And the man introduced himself as Joe Gould. And he said that he had heard that Mitchell was asking questions about him and that Mitchell wanted to speak to him. So he decided to drop into his office to have a chat. Okay, right. Turns out, <laughs> turns out he's quite gregarious. <laughs> <laughs> so why did Joe, Joe Mitchell get this idea that he was like really aloof? And Well, because Joe Gould was a man of some contradictions. He was quite painfully shy, mostly when he was sober. Okay. Um, but when he was drunk, oh my. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. No, seriously. I mean, sometimes like, it went back and forth. He didn't particularly always need booze to be like eccentric and extravagant and extrovert and everything like that. But generally the rule was if he was sober, he was shy. Mm-hmm. And if he was drunk, then he was the centre of attention. Man, it sounds like one of my friends from university. <laughs> sounds like most of our friends from university. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they're always drunk. Yeah. But unfortunately, even though Gould was in the office at the time, he said that he had to go to the doctor to pick up a prescription for his eye trouble. Uh, Gould basically had chronic problems with conjunctivitis. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he said he was going to be prescribed uh, one of two sorts of medicine. One was much more expensive than the other. And he asked Mitchell over the phone if he would get his secretary to lend him two dollars. <laughs> Is this to get the more expensive eye medicine? I don't know. I think it was the cheaper <laughs> one. I'm not entirely sure. Um, just for reference, two dollars adjusted for inflation. It's about thirty dollars okay, in yeah. today's money. So like... Today's eye medicine prices, I guess. Actually, that would be quite cheap if you're in America, but quite expensive if you're in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much, like, Optrex is over in America. Mm. Um, I guess I'm sort of thinking about back in my days of having uh, contact lenses. Oh, right, um, yeah. Like, that used to be £30 mm, per month, yeah. which I guess is similar to $30. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since I worked in a pharmacy, um, I don't, like, Optrex was not that <laughs> Okay. Do you think that he might have been trying to get more money out of Joe than he actually needed for the eye medicine? It's hard to say. <laughs> uh, Joe Gould's relationship with money was interesting. All right. But the receptionist kind of got the phone off Joe Gould and basically said, don't worry, I'm just going to give him the money. Okay. Basically, she wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I mean, you've got a strange man who's been sitting in your office for an hour for no real reason. Well, not just that. Um, when Mitchell returned to the office, the receptionist said that she didn't like Joe Gould. He was a dirty little man and terribly nosy. He asked her how much money she made. And sort of halfway through, while he was waiting, he gave her a note, which he said, read only when I'm gone. Right. The note read... You have beautiful shoulders, my dear, and I should like to kiss them. Oh, I know. No, Joe. I know. He was a dirty old man in many different ways. Oh, no, Joe. But while he was on the phone to Mitchell, he agreed to meet with him, and they sort of arranged a time and place. Mitchell returned to the office, got the got the uh, the skinny mm-hmm. from his receptionist, uh, and found that uh, Gould had also left a note for him. Okay, uh, it was not about his shoulders. It was about his knees. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It was changing the time that they were going to meet. Okay. Because he basically said they arranged to meet at 9.30. Right. I think in the morning. It's unclear, but I'm pretty sure it's the morning. Uh, Because Gould then said, no, 9.30 is a bit early for me. Let's make it 11. I swear to God, this man has so many calls on his time (laughs) for somebody who doesn't have a job. Yeah, well, he does have a job, kind of. Well, no, he doesn't have employment. He has a job. Okay. He has a mission. Oh my god, alright. So, they meet, and Gould was already there when Mitchell turned up, but he was apparently really tired and dishevelled, and he'd had a bad night's sleep, and he'd he'd slept sort of on the pews of a church for a while. Okay. There was this whole thing where he, like, talked a bit about how he'd gone to hell and back. Um, I think he was joking, it's hard to tell. And the pews of a church? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So he persuaded Mitchell to buy him some coffee and fried eggs. Good. <laughs> Just the fried eggs. Yeah. Uh, nice. Well, okay. Gould, Gould always tried to get free food okay. uh, when he could, to the extent that he would go to cafes and order something cheap, like a cup of tea. And then he would get a bowl. 
and he would empty bottles of ketchup into them and eat it with a spoon. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh, but, the tang. Yeah, but this was... <laughs> the tang. The tang. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this was because ketchup was free. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I guess it's got a lot of sugar in it and maybe some, like, surviving vitamin C somewhere. It gets worse, though. Okay, great. Because sometimes when he was done with his cup of tea, he'd ask for a cup of hot water. And the idea is that, obviously, he's got his tea bag, so, you know, he could brew himself a second cup or anything like that. Yeah. No, he'd take some of the ketchup, put it in the hot water, and create a sort of gross bouillon. Oh my gosh, it's tomato soup. (laughs) Instant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, He said that he didn't actually like ketchup, but it was the only food he knew that was completely free. Yeah. Uh, He actually had some pretty disparaging things to say about tomatoes as well, which I'll get into later. (laughs) Those damn tomatoes. They ain't got no good shoulders. (laughs) I'm not sure about his proclivities to tomato shoulders, but he definitely thought they were responsible for a number of deaths at railways. What? (laughs) Okay, okay, I'll hold back. Right. (laughs) Teasing. Teasing. (laughs) So he had his coffee, and apparently coffee had, like, super effect on Gould. Uh, Mitchell says that brandy wouldn't have had more of an effect than coffee did on him, which, despite the fact that, like, this is a man who drinks coffee often. Yeah. I think everyone has this, like, you have coffee, and... After a while where you've had coffee regularly, you need more and more to sort of get you perked up or anything like that. Apparently Joe Gould just had no tolerance for it. Maybe it's just because he's so thin and he doesn't Mm. eat, like, anything. Because, you know, everything has more of an effect of you when you're, you know, you've not eaten yet. Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe, maybe literally he just was caffeine. Mm. Well, it kind of powers him. Yeah. Like Popeye and his spinach. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm Gould the Bohemian, I'm Gould the Bohemian, to save up the scurvy, eat ketchup and coffee, I'm Gould the Bohemian. Yay! <laughs> Did you make that up before? No, sure, stop looking at my script. <laughs> <laughs> spare, of, spare, uh, spare of the moment, off my head. Okay. Ah. <laughs> We're to- this is 100% improvised, guys. Of course, yeah. So Gould then, after he'd perked up, told Mitchell about his childhood. And from the sounds of it, he was actually from quite a wealthy family. Uh, His father and grandfather were both doctors. His grandfather actually was a doctor during the Civil War. Wow, okay. Yeah. And he went to Harvard Medical School for a while. Who, Joe Gould? Joe Gould, yeah. Right, okay. Like, he was from prosperity. Yeah, Jesus. But he did have a tense relationship with his father, uh, he put it down to a number of factors, uh, one of which was the fact that he was small. Okay. Uh, he described himself as a runt, a shrimp, everything like that. He had quite oh. disparaging things to say about his size. Um, oh, Joe. Still not an excuse to be weird about ladies' shoulders, but know, oh, Joe. I know. Um, he also, he was never really sort of particularly good at anything at school. Like, But he got into Harvard Medical School. I know, I know. It's bizarre. Do you I, think he's just like... It, like, he was ha- meant to get A-stars and everything, and he got Bs or something I, like that? I reckon it's something like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, he also had a constantly runny nose. And... <laughs> <laughs> like Lombardi! <laughs> Lombardi is our rabbit. <laughs> for some reason, he has a runny nose all the time, which is not really normal for rabbit, but he's had it since birth, so... Yeah, he's probably fine. He's fine. Uh, unlike Joe Gould. Unlike Joe Gould, and like... So these things, I don't think these things were really a problem for Joe Gould, or possibly they were. He kind of projected these onto his father. Right. He thought his father was disappointed in him because of these things. He said he would often, like, catch his father staring at him with a thoughtful expression. Okay. Sort of not sure what to make of him. Oh, no. I know, it's sad. And his teachers were not much better. Uh, He overheard one of his teachers, I think it was the principal of his school, describe him as a disgusting little bastard who can't even keep in step with himself. Jesus. Yeah. Would you describe a pupil like that? Yes. <laughs> Obviously, this this hurt him. Uh, like, no one yeah. would say that. It's a horrible thing to say. No, I mean, it's so, like, it amazes me. Um, when we look at how people used to teach back in the day, mm. and we look at how we're encouraged to teach nowadays. Yeah. So, for reference, I am actually um, an English teacher. You are? Yes. Oh, shit. 
That's was, where you've been going. <laughs> I, well, was, I was telling the people who are listening. Yeah, no. Just that I'm an English teacher and the amount of positivity that you have to give kids hmm. in order to encourage them is like, there's a ratio for it. You're okay. meant to give three pieces of positive feedback or just positivity yeah. for every one piece of criticism you give them. Right. And that criticism obviously has to be constructive. Yeah. Um, like, if you ever said anything like he's a what is it he's a little D- bastard disgusting little he's bastard. a disgusting little bastard you would be out <laughs> well okay gets even worse because the principal the guy who says this was a good friend of joe gould's father of course he was <laughs> jesus um, but this was actually the thing like this is what hurts joe more than like the comment itself like he said that he could stand it if it was just a comment against him but he saw this as a betrayal of his father because, like, this guy's meant to be his father's friend and he's talking shit about his son behind his back. Okay. He seems to see himself as, like, really linked with his father's ego. Yeah. Like, this is a thing. The relationship between Joe Gould and his father is really interesting. And, mm. like, the more I read about it, like, Joe Gould had a lot of stuff to say about his father. But I feel like there's more that could be gleaned from it. Yeah. So, yeah, so he saw this as a sort of betrayal, even though his relationship to his father was somewhat frosty. Uh, Some modern historians have sort of gone to describe his behaviour, particularly in childhood, to be descriptive of autism, uh, which may explain some of his behaviour. But I'm I'm often wary of, like, historical diagnoses of autism and ASD. I I feel like sometimes it's used to just explain away eccentric behaviour from people in the past. And also, it is frowned upon from my time at university like they said it's generally frowned upon to try and diagnose people with something post the fact Mm. just because like it's really easy to do once somebody's whole life has been lived but you can't like you can't be accurate with it and it doesn't necessarily tell you anything more about them yeah well there was one disorder that we probably can diagnose Joe Gould with. Okay. Or at least this is the supposition by an American historian called Jill Lepore, which was hypergraphia. Right. It's a disorder which is characterised by having a compulsive desire to write or draw. Oh. In Joe Gould's case, it was to write. Despite this, it didn't help him with his education. He wasn't like a great note taker or anything like that. And during his senior year at Harvard, he had the mental breakdown and he was kicked out. Oh, God. Um, I think it was kind of a last straw thing. Yeah. Because from the sounds of it, he wasn't a great pupil. But yeah, they definitely just wanted to get rid of him. Mm. His father was actually really angry about this. Um, He did seem to love him after a fashion. When Gould was kicked out, his father wrote to the college and said, a college should never become so big or impersonal that it tends to break rather than make a boy. He also defended the problems Gould had, sort of saying that he was left-handed, so Mm. writing was sometimes difficult. He was nearsighted and not very strong. Basically, that they should be ashamed of themselves. Oh, okay. So it's... Oh, that's nice. Hard to tell, because obviously we only really have Gould's side of it. Yeah. um, Apart from some of these little snippets from other people. His description of his father is definitely always like this one of disappointment coming from him. Yeah. But I think, I don't know, like, I I think it would be interesting to have more, to be able to sort of see that relationship in full from an objective viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just more that he was worried about this kind of thing happening to his son. Well, Gould, to be honest, he never really had much interest in medicine to begin with. He wasn't super put out by being kicked out of Harvard. He began to pursue other ventures. In 1915, he became interested in eugenics. Oh my god. Yeah, now... Um, Okay, um, normally, this is a big red flag to any historian because eugenics (laughs) is almost always, always used as a justification for racism. Yes. For those who don't know, eugenics is the principle of effectively breeding better people. And Mm -hmm. often those people tend to have certain characteristics. And you go, hey, I think that the best people have blonde hair and And, blue eyes. And are white skinned. Yes, exactly. But Gould didn't seem to really buy into that. He was just more curious just about the differences between people, it seemed. Okay. 
he used his time to go to various Native American tribes and he would take measurements of them for nothing more than his own interest. Right, he didn't, okay. He didn't draw any conclusions from them and it was, it was more of a sort of anthropological study than yeah. anything else. I do have to say, I, I kind of love the idea of approaching random Native American tribes being like, hey, can I measure you? They seem to be super into it. <laughs> okay. From, from Gould's description, they found him hilarious. Okay. So, I mean... That may be Ghoul doing something of his own character, but I could see that. Yeah, this, I guess so. This I mean... tiny little man, this tiny little <laughs> five foot four, hundred pound man approaching this tribe and going, can I measure you please? I've got my calipers and tongs here. And they're like, what kind of racist descriptions are you going to make of us? And he's like, no, no, genuinely, I'm just interested. <laughs> so he had a great many interests and uh, some of them made it into his writings. Uh, he liked writing and he liked poetry. He was actually friends with quite a few famous people. Uh, he was friends with E. Cummings. Oh my god, okay. Yep, Horace Gregory, Edmund mm-hmm. Wilson. He did take a dim view of a lot of the poetry of his peers in the village um, because he, he basically thought they were super pretentious. Because they were people living in Greenwich Village. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some places just never change, do they? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, he was also particularly interested in seagulls. Okay, great. <laughs> It was probably from his time he grew up uh, in a suburb of Boston called Norwood. All right. And apparently, like, he d- he he had d- a dim view of the place, but he liked the seagulls. Okay. He would often sort of watch them, and he... Oh, man. Why seagulls? I don't know. But he clearly found something romantic about them, because he claimed that he had studied so much of the seagulls that he could speak the seagull language. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did he try this? Like, did people used to see him running down the street screeching? Yes. Oh my god, alright. In fact, he recited poetry for Joseph Mitchell in Seagull. Wow. (laughs) I mean, have you ever read Jonathan Livingston's Seagull? I haven't actually, no. Okay, so I had a very odd time with one of my RE teachers at one point. Mm. Um, When I was at a Catholic all-girls school run by nuns. The nuns, by the way, were never the strange teachers it was always the people who were Mm. very very catholic and wanted to teach at a catholic all-girls school run by nuns yeah one such lady decided to read us jonathan livingston seagull and it's all about this seagull that wants to learn how to soar higher than any other (laughs) seagull and ignores food in order to do so and the whole thing is very religious and very like trippy at the same time (laughs) i wonder whether he had this like whole weird view on seagulls being like oh yeah they just want to soar higher than any other bird I don't think so. Okay. I think he just likes them. <laughs> I mean, you do get people who just like particular birds. Yeah. Like I, Tesla and that pigeon. Yeah. Which we will talk about at we some point. We will talk about at some point. Um, but like I said, he could recite poetry in Seagull. Great, uh, yes. Apparently he did this once for Mitchell where they were in a restaurant and he started <laughs> flapping his arms and squawking and spluttering. And when he finished, uh, he asked Mitchell if like, he knew what he was reciting. And Mitchell was like, no, <laughs> of course I don't. And he said it was The Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Jesus, what a name. I know, right? Uh, but this earned Joe Gould one of his many monikers, which was Professor Seagull. Great. Okay. And that was the name that Joseph Mitchell actually used to title his 1942 profile of <laughs> Joe Gould. Right. Oh, I'm, uh, sorry, I've just got this whole image of being at this restaurant and suddenly this just guy's just like... <laughs> yeah. Like I said, he was kind of when he was drunk and gregarious, he liked being the center of attention. <laughs> but his main interest, uh, aside from the poetry, the uh, eugenics, anthropology, and the, the seagulls, seagulls. Uh, his main interest was history. He wasn't interested, sort of, just in historical data or manuscripts or anything like that. He was really taken by an introduction written by W.B. Yeats in a book he'd come across while either stealing or browsing from a second-hand bookshop. Great. Uh, apparently he'd often steal from places like that and sell the books on. <laughs> but he, he read this introduction and it kind of, it really motivated him. It spoke to him for what history should be. It's the history of a nation is not in parliaments and battlefields, but in what people say to each other on fair days and high days and in how they farm and quarrel and go on pilgrimage. 
It's basically that real history is in the lives of everyday people during everyday times. Yeah, okay. Like, that's a very modern outlook on history. Hmm. But this was... I, I don't remember what year it was. But... Yeah, they're still kind of into the great men vision of history yeah, back then. Yeah, exactly. But this really spoke to Joe Gould. He took it to heart, and he took it fairly literally, and thus was born the concept for the longest book in history, An Oral History of Our Time, it was titled. Right. His goal, and his method, was to essentially eavesdrop on people and record their conversations, no matter how boring, idiotic, obscene, or vulgar. Gould had a crazy memory. Like, despite always being late to meetings with Mitchell, Mm -hmm. if he showed up at all, or being ridiculously early, seeming not having remembered when they were meant to be meeting, uh, he could recall conversations he overheard practically perfectly. I I don't think this was just a boast. Like, Gould boasts Mm. a lot of things about himself, but I'm pretty sure he demonstrated this ability. Okay. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, So, a memory for overhead conversations, but not for times or places. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah. And he would spend his entire time writing his oral history in these composition books. Okay. He was always wandering around with a portfolio, which had several books in it at once. And he'd go around, set himself down at a place, eat Mm -hmm. a nice bowl of ketchup. Delicious. (laughs) And get to work on his oral history. And by the time Mitchell uh, published his profile, the oral history was reputed to be more than nine million words in length. Okay, now I've got no idea about what book lengths look like. So, if you just sort of picture the average paperback. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's about 100,000 words. Okay. I think it, Les Miserables, I think is like 500,000 words. Okay, Jesus, right. Yeah. Okay. So this is 18 times the length of Les Miserables. Wow. And it's just made up of conversations. It's just, well, well, there's a bit of a mix to it. It's advertised as being just made up of conversations, but there's a bit more to it than that. Oh, okay. So obviously, like, this was hard to keep around. You can't mm. keep a nine million word book on you at all times. So he would stash books in places Uh, Generally with friends or just acquaintances, anyone who had some sort of storage, he would pop by with a composition book and drop it off and go around again. The oral history was piled up everywhere, all over the place. Right. Uh, Apparently when they were piled up together, this book was taller than Joe Gould himself. That's not hard, though. I mean, it's not hard. It's (laughs) five foot four, but it's still impressive. Yeah, that is impressive. (laughs) Uh, He tried on multiple occasions to get the oral history published. Most publishers either thought it was too bizarre, badly written, or they just couldn't read his handwriting. Okay. Uh, It's one of the symptoms of hypographia is, like, your handwriting is just crazy because you're just trying to get as many words as possible. It's so rushed that things just blur into each other. So, of course, none of them wanted to publish it. No... There were a couple of magazines and periodicals that published individual chapters after heavy editing. Yeah, yeah. But no one wanted or seemed to be able to get hold of the whole thing. Uh, Mitchell was given a few chapters. He asked Joe Gould for them and Gould was happy to oblige. He described them as being rambling and full of sudden leaps to different topics. And Gould was also prone to perfectionism. So he was constantly rewriting chapters as well. Okay. Mitchell would get a chapter and then ask for some more, and Joe Gould would basically give him a rewrite of the chapter he just read. And it's still rambling and bizarre. It's still rambling and bizarre. It never really got any better. The details were just slightly changed. Right. So you've got this idea of Joe Gould in your head right now, I imagine. Sort of like, crazy homeless person going around begging for food and booze. Vaguely entertaining people, just kind of with his presence. He would ask for money from people asking them to contribute to the Joe Gould Fund. Nice. That's good. (laughs) He'd hit up many people for money. He was also, as I said, chucked out of a lot of places. He described it as his bohemian friends or people he knew who were poets had essentially blacklisted him. Okay. Because it was around the time they were getting really into Marxism. Right. And... They described everything in terms of the proletariat. Yes. And they were suddenly, they weren't just poets, they were proletarian poets. This really annoyed Gould. He thought it was really pretentious of them, especially when many of them were quite wealthy. Mm. He would say things like, 
someone he knew who was part of this movement had a daughter who was attending ballet lessons. Right. And he asked her if she was going to become a proletarian ballet dancer. (laughs) I love it because, you know, ballet. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, He wrote uh, a number of poems about this, uh, one of which was called The Barricades, which apparently was so shocking and so offensive to their sensibilities that his friends turned on him, blackened his name to everyone... And suddenly places where he was allowed before, certain cafes and that, they wouldn't always turn him away, but they were like super frosty to him. Right. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, I mean, I reckon that it's probably just that they got sick of him turning up and eating all the ketchup. Could be. But at the same time, just the idea that your friends who are wealthy suddenly have an issue with you who are really poor saying Mm. that they're not proletarians. (laughs) Which they're not. (laughs) Well, don't worry, because Gould is going to get the last laugh on this. Because Mitchell publishes his profile of Joe Gould, and he becomes something of a celebrity. Yay! Tourists would chat with him, and they'd buy him booze and food in exchange for, effectively, lectures delivered with exuberant enthusiasm and at great length. Excellent. Uh, Nine million words? Not quite nine million words, But they were expansive. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Later in his life, uh, a friend of Gould got together a few other people and decided that she wanted to help Joe as his health was suffering. Because he was still, even though he was famous, he was bad with money. Okay. Um, He didn't have much at the best of times. And he said that he got uncomfortable when he had more than a dollar on him. Yeah. I mean, I can see why you would be if you're homeless mm. and not really with any fixed abode, you know? Like, I would be a bit worried in case people stole it off me. I think for him it was more of a principle... Well, not even a principle, just a sort of character quirk. Like, because there were times uh, a wealthy relative of his died and left him quite a significant amount of money. Okay. I think it was a $1,000, and... He spent it in basically like two weeks. Wow. Well, what on? Uh, mostly gifts for other people. Oh, okay. Yeah, he would like buy fancy presents for people he knew or he'd buy them food or drinks or anything like that. Like lavish displays of generosity. Yeah. Because having the money just made him uncomfortable. Okay. That's and, really interesting. Yeah. But obviously it means that, you know, mm. always homeless, penniless, begging for food, everything like that. Yeah, you've been given enough money to buy a house and you're like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So this friend of Gould arranged to act as a secret benefactor and okay. patron and give him a small amount of money each week. So it was enough that he could live on it, yeah, but not so much that he'd go mad and just you know, spend it. It was arranged partly that he would receive lodging in a lodging house. Okay. And that was where part of this money would go on. Yeah. And then he could buy his meals at the house and have a little bit of money just sort of hanging around spending money. Mm-hmm. People would sort of subtly check to see if he was actually buying meals because the worry was he'd just save it up and buy, it and buy booze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a subtle eye was kept on him. Just see if he was hoarding it as well, which, I mean... It doesn't sound like he would, but I could get how you'd be worried about exactly, that. Exactly. He does exactly. sound like a bit of an addict. Yeah. He was super interested in who this patron was, though. Oh, yeah. And he never found out. Uh, no one actually found out until much later. And rumours started spreading around that it was some fantastically wealthy woman who was uh, popular in the arts. Okay. And many poets, the ones who previously hated Gould, asked him to show their work to his patron. And, of course, he didn't know who she was, so no. he, would just, he would just take the poems or artwork or whatever it was they'd given him, hide it away for a week or so. <laughs> yeah. And then tell them that his patron thought it was crap and that they were talentless. (laughs) Yes! Yes, Joe! I know. Those dicks. Yeah, so this was his revenge and like I think we can say, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So between the New Yorker profile and the largesse of his wealthy patron, Gould became quite popular and well-known. And then as suddenly as it has come, his wealth and good fortune vanished. For some unknown reason, his patrons stopped sending money. Okay. It's unclear. I don't know if I just misread it. I don't think I did. But it it does seem to be that the patron was tired or possibly went away, possibly died. Who knows? But either way, the money ran out. Yeah. Gould kept sort of trying to find the reason for this. 
but he didn't know who his patron was. He kept mm-hmm. trying to find out. And eventually he started having spend more and more time begging for food, money, and booze, obviously. Yeah. He collapsed on the street in 1952, and he was taken to an institution, and he died five years later at the age of 68, which isn't bad considering, but it's still pretty sad. That is sad. But that's not where the story ends. What? He <laughs> rose from the dead. No. That's, okay, no, because now we go back a bit. Because Mitchell, since his 1942 profile, had kept in contact with Gould long after this had been published. And seven years after Gould died, Mitchell wrote another profile, which became the second part of the book Joe Gould's Secret. Mitchell said that he'd put off talking about some of the stuff he'd learned out of a sort of respect for the dead. Okay. He came to the realisation that he had created a romanticised version of Joe Gould in his head. And it was only after he saw a portrait that an artist friend of Gould's had done of him that he changed his mind. And he decided to tell all because that would be what Gould wanted and it would probably amuse him to think of it. Okay, so he's got this romantic vision of Joe Gould. And, like, some of the things you have told me have been really romantic. Yeah. Um, but, like, the whole ketchup thing, the shoulders <laughs> thing, like... I think it's like, oh, he's quirky, he's eccentric, he's, like, he's larger than life. Okay. And it's like, that stuff, you have to admit, that is kind of larger than life. Like, could you imagine walking into a place and just seeing a guy eating a bowl of ketchup? And then I learn... mean, yeah, but I wouldn't be happy about it. Yeah, but then you learn that that very same guy knows the language of seagulls and is writing the longest book in history. All right, yeah, that's pretty fab. Yeah. I keep comparing him in my mind to Joshua Norton. Mm. Um, and like I said with Joshua Norton, you couldn't really find any any bad things about him. He mm. just was that larger-than-life character. Yeah. Um, so it's... It's really interesting looking at another, like, larger-than-life eccentric who captures the, mm. the view of the populace, but, you know, is a bit more like a regular homeless person yeah. than Joshua Norton was. I think the thing is that Joshua Norton kind of captured the spirit of the city at the time. Yeah. And from the sounds of it, San Francisco of its era and New York of its era were very different places. Yeah, I guess so. I suppose that Joe Gould is living in incredibly impoverished times, difficult times, mm. like throughout World War Two mm. and the Great Depression. Yeah. So there is a lot more poverty and starvation and worries going yeah, on. definitely. But Mitchell, obviously, he created this romanticised view And that wasn't Joe Gould. And he saw it in this portrait. Wow. I I haven't been able to find a picture of the portrait, (laughs) but I will describe it to you. Okay, go. The portrait was a life-size nude. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Okay. Of Joe Gould with everything out on display. Uh, Not just that. He had a cock and balls growing out of his navel. What?! And Did he in real life? No, no, he didn't. This was in the portrait. <laughs> okay. Uh, because there was another set growing out of the wooden bench he was sitting on. Right. But this is not the thing that Joseph Mitchell was sort of taken by. It was the expression on Joe Gould's face, because apparently the artist had captured his expression perfectly. Like I said, Joe Gould is somewhat a contradictory man. He was painfully shy for the most part, but would also, particularly when he'd been drinking, become amazingly extrovert. He talked wildly and adored being the centre of attention. He'd go around to party at, at parties and sort of like basically hit on women, but in a very mild way. Yeah. Sort of asking them to dance. And if he was rebuffed by everyone, he would suddenly flap his arms and deliver a speech in Seagull. Nice. Okay. <laughs> well, that's one way I've never been terrified at a club before. <laughs> So the artist said that she saw him deep down as a frightful old exhibitionist, the kind you see late at night in the subway, and he didn't necessarily know it. Basically, she's saying he's a flasher. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But instead of flashing his junk, he flashed the world this character. Right. So she thought maybe he was trying to affront people? Yeah. With with his personality? Yeah, pretty much. interesting, okay. So Mitchell decided... You know what? This is the Joe Gould that actually was. So he would use this second profile to let Joe Gould flash the world once more. Amazing. When Mitchell asked if he could read some of the oral history, Gould gave him a number of these chapters. Yeah. But they were essays, basically. Uh, things that 
Joe Gould had thought about, or they'd be rewrites, mm. a lot of it would be the same chapter, which is about the death of his father. Right. Which he had a lot to talk about. <laughs> I bet. Uh, there were other chapters which were titled in such a way as Drunk as a Skunk, or How I Measured the Heads of 1500 Indians in Zero Weather. That's Native Americans, mm-hmm. not, but yeah. Or The Dread Tomato Habit, or Watch Out, Watch Out, Down with Dr. Gallup. Does this mean that we are now ready for you to tell me about his issues with tomatoes. (laughs) Okay, in the chapter he describes that a lot of the problems of the modern world occurred because of a subtle and silent disease caused by the consumption of tomatoes. Okay. He ascribes fatal errors in surgeries as coming from this disease from tomatoes, and I think it's... I think he describes it as 53% of railway accidents are caused because the driver had eaten tomatoes. Wow, okay. I think we can safely say that he was delusional. Tomatoes? Tomatoes. What? Uh, okay, so... I don't know why. So did he think that the surgeons doing surgery somehow got delirious from their tomato eating and that's the reason why they made mistakes? He doesn't go into detail. <laughs> okay. It's very frustrating. He like makes these grand claims, and it's probably because like sometimes when when it comes to things like delusions, people basically put two and two together in new, creative, and unusual ways. Yeah. And most people wouldn't see it that way, but people make this connection and they go, "Ah, oh, that is this because of this." Yeah. So obviously, he read some statistics somewhere and concluded that tomatoes were the answer. Exactly. Brilliant. Exactly. So, Joseph Mitchell was disappointed in receiving <laughs> these chapters. Uh, especially because he just often got rewrites of the same four or five chapters. Yeah, God, imagine reading that theory like ten times. Yeah. Most importantly, none of these were overheard conversations. No. Which is the point of the oral history. <laughs> no, the oral history is entirely about my views on my father's death. Yep. And tomatoes. And tomatoes. Yeah. So Mitchell confronted Gould about this, and Gould explained, Ah, ah, you see, the oral history is divided into two parts. There are essays, Mm. and the oral history. Right, okay. And he had given Mitchell the essays. So he still had the oral history yet to read. He said that he wanted the oral part of the oral history to be published posthumously. He wanted it to be, like, have this huge impact on the world, and he thought that it could only happen after he had died. Sure. Yeah. I I get that. I, like, there's a certain logic there. Yeah? Well, it's, it's a bit like that whole thing about how, like, an artist's work increases in value after they die. I, I get... It's not the same, but I can see the... If you if you kind of close off your rational part of your brain for a moment, <laughs> okay, okay, I see what you mean. All the best authors are dead. Exactly. So yeah, so he didn't want it published while he was alive, so he'd stashed it away in places that were either really hard to find or had some sort of impediment to their being found. There was apparently a big bale of books which was kept in the cellar of a friend who only kept them there on the condition that Joe Gould wasn't coming back and forth every few days to fetch them. Right. So when Mitchell wanted to get them, he found that the friend had gone on holiday and a truculent relative didn't want to give the books to him. Oh no! Yeah, so you might think you figured out what Joe Gould's secret might be regarding the oral history. I still haven't, I've got no clue. Oh okay, fair enough. Good. I thought it would be super obvious, but no, that's much better. Mitchell was suspecting something was up with the oral history. Okay. And at this point, he basically sat Gould down and said, look, I don't think I have enough here. Why don't we call it a day? It's been fun, but, you know, I don't think there's enough here. And Gould surprised him by recounting at great length and in great detail several chapters of the oral history. And these were profiles of people that were largely similar to Gould himself. Uh, There was the deacon, who was a drunk who was searching for his lost soul and would frequently see the devil uh, wandering around town. Mm -hmm. Or old Budapest, who was a woman... Yeah. (laughs) Old Budapest, also known as The Pest, uh, who was a woman who had been three times married and three times a widow and seemed to be involved in drug trafficking. Great. He he was just sort of able to recount these and apparently was described like it wasn't just him making it up. This was his memory at play here. And this placated Mitchell. 
somewhat. And later on, when the profile had been published in the New Yorker and Gould had some clout about time, he decided to try once again to get the oral history and specifically to get it published in its entirety. Okay. Gould was less than helpful about this. He would often demand advances from publishers before they had even agreed to meet him. Great. (laughs) (laughs) It was only when Mitchell conspired with a publisher friend of his to have an unofficial meeting with Gould Mm -hmm. that they actually had a serious discussion about it. Okay. It was basically that Joe Gould, uh, after the profile was written, would drop into Joseph Mitchell's office every now and then because he got people to send letters to to him to the office... Okay. And he would come every week and pick them up and basically have a bit of a chat with Joseph Mitchell. Wow. All right. So on one of these meetings, oh my, my friend is here. He's a publisher. I'm sure he'd love to hear all about your book. Everything fell apart. Gould made considerable demands. And this is not just about money at this stage. It was about how the history should be published and when. Okay. Like I said, he wanted it published posthumously. Yeah. He also wanted it published entirely without anything being changed. And basically got so uppity about it that the publisher just kind of left and basically yeah. went, this is not possible. I cannot do this. Do you know if there are any publishers who would publish something posthumously? Like who would agree to doing that? Because that's a risk, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to pay in advance, but... Uh... Uh, well, yeah, but at the same time, just... You'd be sitting on these books for like 20 years or Mm. something and then become completely irrelevant. Yeah. Well, Mitchell was less than happy about this. Mm -hmm. You know, he's put a lot of work in this stage trying to help out Joe Gould and Joe Gould has basically thrown it back in his face every single time. Mm. His publisher friend has just been like hanging around the office for a week (laughs) waiting for (laughs) Joe Gould to turn up at some point. And he was furious and possibly unconsciously said that he didn't think that the oral history even existed. And in that moment, when he saw the expression on Joe Gould's face, he realised that he had hit the nail on the head. Oh my god! That the oral history may have existed in some capacity, but that capacity was inside Joe Gould's head. Right. The stories he had dictated had come from his book, but had never been written on paper. All he had actually written were those few chapters that he constantly rewrote and with which he was never satisfied. So Gould was crushed. He was embarrassed, like properly embarrassed, possibly for the first time since Mitchell had known him. And the relationship between the two fell apart for a while. They did uh, get back together. It's okay. You look sad. It's all right. I am sad. That's really tragic. I know. And the thing is... Mitchell said that he really regretted saying that. Yeah. Because he kind of viewed it as everyone has that novel in their head Mm -hmm. that they've never written, but they know it. Like, they've got this idea, and if only they had the sort of right time, the right set of circumstances, anything like that, they could write it and it would be great. And he kind of saw it as, this was Joe Gould's version of that. And not just that. But it played into who he was as an individual. That Joe Gould, with this book in his head, was not so much himself, but a character of himself. And a character that he played 24-7 to entertain people, to entertain himself, or just to kind of deal with the world. I mean, as you said, like, we've got... Joe Gould lived through two world wars Mm -hmm. and the Great Depression. Yeah. So... I guess this may just have been his way of dealing with it. So Mitchell decided, you know, it didn't really matter that Joe Gould hadn't actually written anything. He went back to see him in multiple places and the two, they became friends again. Okay. I think the idea is that Mitchell never really brought it up again. Mm. Joe Gould didn't want to bring it up. They just kind of pretended it had never happened. But now Mitchell was kind of part of this character of Joe Gould as well. Yeah. And they seem to have been fairly happy. Okay. You look really sad. You said last time, you said that was a really sad story you brought me, Amelia. <laughs> you said, I, I'm just heartbroken by this man's death. <laughs> we can't just leave it there. Oh, oh, I'm not just leaving it there. There's a twist. <gasps> so there's a lot more... He did write a book. <laughs> 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 he did write a book <laughs> sort of 
There's a lot more to be found in Joe Gould's Secret by Joseph Mitchell. And like I said, I do recommend that anyone interested should read it. There's also a film uh, which was made in the year 2000 with Stanley Tucci as Joseph Mitchell and Ian Holm as Joe Gould, uh, which I kind of want to watch. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I do want to watch it. Um, But yet, there is a final part of the mystery. We know that the oral history was not nearly the grand work that Gould proclaimed it to be. But after Joseph Mitchell published Joe Gould's Secret in 1965, a number of people came forward with notebooks which Gould had given them containing additional chapters of the oral history. What? It may not have been, as uh, Mitchell put it, the lengthiest unpublished work in history, but it was much more than Mitchell had initially suspected. Not just that, a Harvard classmate and collator of anthologies, the best American short stories, said that he and Ezra Pound, the poet and fascist, (laughs) had seen a sample which had run to 40,000 words. What? Which was, okay. Which was considerably more than the few chapters that Joseph Mitchell ever saw. Right. So there's something out there. I mean, if you think back, there was this story about the them all being put together and being taller than Joe Gould himself, and that was corroborated. Okay. And they're saying that it wasn't just he was copying out the same stories no. over and over again. No. There seems to be more to it than that. I think kind of what we get from this is that Joe Gould has a legacy of a mystery and I don't think he'd be unhappy with that. So why did he look like he hadn't written any more stories? (laughs) I don't know. Did he just like forget that he'd done more? No, no, I think, I think what had happened was he had this private disappointment that the oral history wasn't everything he wanted it to be. Okay. I think I think there was more to it than Mitchell suspected at the time uh, or sort of what the evidence suggested. I think there was more to it, but there wasn't as much as Joe Gould wanted. Yeah. So I think it was a source of disappointment to him that he had never been able to like properly create this nine million word oral history of our time. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Like, I genuinely do. It's the sort of moment where you kind of go, I want to be just like this other writer yeah. that I love. And when you write something, you're like, this is awful. Mm. I never want anyone to see this. Yeah. And that's the thing. Joe Gould was at heart a perfectionist. Yeah. And I think that's really the sort of core of that embarrassment that Mitchell produced in him. It wasn't so much that he hadn't written anything at all. It was that he hadn't succeeded. Yeah. Oh, man. So, really, what we are left with is this mystery. And there are people who still sort of try and find, if not the notebooks, then where, like, trying to trace where they might have gone. Yeah, okay. Because he stashed stuff around. It's like, it's the stuff out there. So if we have any listeners in the Greenwich Village, could you please check under your floors? Yes. <laughs> check under your floors in any storage places. If you have a truculent relative with a cellar, uh, <laughs> see if they've got anything down there. Because who knows? There may be the rest of Joe Gould's oral history out there waiting Ooh. to be found. What a mystery. I know. And that's that's why I think that, you know, he'd be quite happy with that as his legacy. It's... It's his flashing the world once again. But only briefly. It's a tease. There's something out there. Ooh. Is there a penis under there? <laughs> Who knows? Is there a penis? I thought I saw it. A flash of it. No, it's gone now. Is it on his navel? <laughs> Is it coming out of that bench? Oh, God. <laughs> Is he secretly a seagull? <laughs> oh, shit. Did he eat tomatoes? <laughs> What if the reason why he kept eating tomato ketchup, apart from the fact that it was for free, was because he thought it would get him high? <laughs> Not sure that's what the silent disease did. I think it just caused railway accidents. <laughs> but that's where we kind of leave Joe Gould at the moment. And there's a lot of speculation. Some people have written some really interesting articles about him. And like I said, thoroughly recommend it. It's a fascinating story. And... I had a great time doing this and I I think next time we should move on from crazy old homeless people but I think we've had a good run (laughs) well next time we're actually going to talk about an artifact and one that many people may have seen 
But there is possible homelessness involved in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that's part of the history with everyday normal people rather than battles and parliaments. So we'll make WB Yates proud. Yay! (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, As usual, rate and review us on all the various places. You know the podcast spiel, and if you don't... Uh, (laughs) we care please rate and review us on itunes or spotify or whatever you're listening to and recommend us to your friends thank you thank you very much and see you next week